You know, we, we happen to be, uh, you know, in the three weeks. Last Sunday, today is, of course, Monday night, but last week's Sunday was uh, Shivos Batamas. So that, of course, begins the period of what's called the three weeks, uh, and that's the lead-up to, uh, to Tishabov. You know, and so for three weeks you have to observe many behaviors which indicate mourning, uh, can't listen to music, and so on. So I, I thought it was appropriate just to talk a little about that. Some of the very important ideas in Hashkofa about that period of time. Uh, and actually, it, uh, the ideas that I want to share with you would be ideas which are what's called congruent uh, with the ideas that I've been speaking about. You know, the, the whole concept of the Sutton and how he survives and the concept of redemption, the Gaula, how it comes and so on. Uh, so I've dealt extensively so far with that. So there are certain ideas that I feel I'd like to uh, speak about to, to lend a, gl- a greater clarity in terms of uh, what the three weeks are and uh, the redemption, the exile, and so on. Now, <clears throat> what's very interesting is a certain phenomenon. Now, last week, uh, I had spoken a very important shear. Uh, it's the Great Reset Part 2. And part of the Shia was, was devoted to understanding the nature of the Sultan. Uh, you know, and just a, a brief uh, restatement of that. But we know the Sultan is a malach, an angel, that is in charge of din, justice. And he's appointed by God to do that. Therefore, he has three jobs. To tempt a person to sin... And then to, if a person does, does sin, in that role he's called the Eitzahara, and he's also the great prosecutor, where he will prosecute a person in the court, and in that role he's called the Sultan. Uh, first of all, he's called the Eitzahara, and in the second role he's called the Sultan, and of course in the third role he's called the Malchamovis, which means that he's responsible for the execution of the law, or the, whatever the the consequences of the sin is. We know that. Also, what is unique about the Sutton, which I explained in the last year, uh, is that the Sutton is the only malach, angel, that grows or can be diminished. All other malachim are stable, which means that they will always be exactly as they were created. No more, no less. There's no way for them to increase the, uh, the capacity of their being in any, any way. But the Sutton can, uh, which is a very, very unique position. And I went into this last week that he can do this. And what is critical is that the only other being really that can grow also are the Jews. You know, the Jews can grow or diminish. Same idea. And, uh, of course, it depends if they do the will of God. So these ideas are very important. Now, what is also important, which I had mentioned uh, last year, the year of the Great Reset, Part 2, is that we have an unusual relationship with the Sutton. That 
in order for the sultan to grow, right, uh, he must have a certain kedusha. He has to take it from God. And those are called the spots of holiness. And he needs that. He's got to feed on that to grow. If he's denied that, then he will cease to exist, which is very interesting. So therefore the sultan clearly can be annihilated because of that. And he gets those sparks from the Jews. Because when a Jew does a mitzvah, he brings down the sparks of holiness, which is part of the energy or the light of the spheroids, right? The ten spheres and so on. So he brings down that energy. And if the Jew sins, then we know that, of course, the Satan can take from that energy. And then he grows himself. That's a, and, 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 and therefore, <clears throat> of course, he... Being uh, a being that can change and grow, obviously, that becomes a primary motive of the Sultan to do his job. Because it's not only his assignment to uphold justice, right? And to make sure that just is, justice is done. But he gets something out of it. It's called a self-interest. In that if he can find the, get the Jew to sin, and the court finds him guilty, which means the heavenly court, and he could take from that, uh, we know he could take from that uh, Kedusha, holiness, and that's called Yeniko, he's unique. He feeds off that, and he grows. That's a very, obviously, very strong motive for the Sultan. But the truth is, this relationship that we have with evil, where we, we feed evil, and we contribute to its growth, or we can annihilate it, the fundamental relationship between us and the Sultan, between the Jew and the Sultan, between holiness and evil, so to speak. In any case, this is our relationship with the Sultan, which I, I've said many times, but it's very important to understand this. Now, what is also uh, important is that history revolves around this relationship. And I, I, I want to mention uh, three tremendously historical events that really emerges is a consequence of our relationship with the Sutton. And it's important uh, because it does in many ways define, you know, what the three weeks really are. The first idea that I would like to say is that... <clears throat> When the first base Amigdis was destroyed, that's about 2,400 years ago. You know, it's probably about, all the English, the continent is secular, they think it's 586 BCE. But really it's not, it's probably much uh, sooner than that. Uh, it's not as far back as that. It's probably something like 450 BCE. BCE means before common era. Uh, and that's what had happened. But the major idea that we know is that when that did happen, it can only have happened because of the Jews' sinned. And we know that this Besamegnus, the first one, I should say, was destroyed. Why? So Chazal tell us, because they transgressed the three Averis sins for which one is obligated to give his life rather than transgress. And we know they are uh, Gilia Royas, which is um, uh, sexual promiscuity, incest, and so on. 
we have Shvichas Domim, which is murder, and Avedi Zorah, which is idol worship. And a Jew is obligated to give his life rather than transgress these three particular sins. In any case, apparently that generation was very guilty of these three sins, and therefore God decided to remove, destroy the first base of Middash. So he had the Babylonians do it. You know, they can't do anything on their own. They can only do it if there is a decree that allows them to be the agents of God. And unfortunately, this is what God did. But what is important to remember is the role of the Sutton. Because remember, the Sutton prosecutes. So obviously that's what he did. And because he prosecutes, right, he's able to take or nourish from those sparks of holiness. And it all depends on what he takes. What is interesting is that he was able to nourish from, right, the divine energy of God. Not that he could force God to do that, but justice demands that there has to be some type of uh, appropriate, uh, you know, compensation for what the Jews did. So what the Sultan said at that point in time, said, look, they're worshipping idols. They're doing those three sins which are terrible, you know, so why should you stay amongst them? You see? So, therefore, he won in Besden, in the heavenly tribunal, and God allowed uh, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the first Besamekdash. But what does that mean? Was the Sultan really interested in the destruction of the Besamekdash? What he really wanted was to be able to take from the divine presence itself, right? And as a result of that, <coughs> uh, strengthen the whole um, argument or the temptation of Jews to sin further, you see. So what does he do? He grows in tremendous power because he's now taken from the divine energy. And as a result of that, he wants to, of course, increase the likelihood that Jews will sin so he can get more power. Now, if you remember, what the Sutton was taking was divine sparks, but from the presence of the Shekhinah, the divine presence itself. And therefore, he was able to take that concept of the divine presence, right, and give it to Goyim. Very interesting. He was able to give the concept of a divine presence and give it to the Goyim. Where do we see this? Because he does that, he justifies it through dinam, through judgments. Where do we see that in history? Because within a 100-year period of time of the destruction of the first temple, most of the religions of the world were founded. What are they? For instance, Buddhism, right? Buddha lived around that time. And there are hundreds of millions of Buddhists. Not only that, but uh, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, the religion of China, you see, he lived at around that time. And not only that, those two, but Confucius. And Confucianism is a major religion in the Far East. So you have those three. 
But not only was the an understanding of the presence of God given to Goyim, you see, and that's when it was founded. But Chochmah, because like it says in the Torah, Ki that the Torah is your wisdom and your discernment in the eyes of the Goyim. So therefore, besides receiving the permission to give to Goyim an understanding of the Divine Presence, he also was able to give to Goyim tremendous amount of Chochmah. How do we see that? Because the basic the modern civilization, called historians, is really founded on Greeks, the Greek, you know, uh, approach to logic, science, philosophy. You had many great philosophers, Greek philosophers, who lived at that time. Who are they, for instance? We know there's Socrates, Plato, there's Aristotle, right? And there's other Parmenides, Pythagoras. That was a whole generation of Greek philosophy, right? Greek philosophers. And they were able to enormously expand on the chokhmah, on the intelligence and the brilliance, you know, of uh, human wisdom and so on. So that was also given to the goyim right around that time. Because that's a sudden taking from what we have and giving it to goyim. And hopefully that will attract Jews to sin. But not only that, there's a third element that the Sultan was able to take. And what is that? Because the Jewish people are unique in the sense that they have these two attributes. One is called Teferes, beauty, which is Chokhmah, wisdom. And the other thing is called might, Oiz, Teferes and Oz, beauty and might. And might is really Hatzlocha, tremendous success. So he was able to take from that. So the Teferis, right, beauty, the wisdom, that goes to the Greeks. Where did the Oiz go? And of course, the whole concept of, uh, of the wisdom of theology also goes to the Goyim. But what's interesting is that in the West, might, tremendous Hatzlochah, went to the Goyim. Who? Rome. The Etruscans took over Rome, Italy, I should say, approximately 800 BCE. And the Etruscans, whatever they were, the civilization uh, that was in Italy before the Romans came, they were there till about 500 BCE. But right after 500 BCE, I think it's 525 BC, right around the time they destroyed the base of Migdash, Rome became a republic. Yes. That was the beginning of Rome. And there you are. That's the oiz. That's the might. So we see incredible three things happen. One is the theology, the understanding of religion, presence of God, and so on, or metaphysics, if you want to call it that. And then there is philosophy, science, you see, of the Greeks, and uh, architecture, literature, whatever, right? And then you have the might of Rome. All of this began at that time. Uh, was this an accident? No. In fact, in Echo, Yermiyah says the following, right? Soreha umalkeho, he's referring to the Jewish people, Israel. 
Soreha Umalkeho, her princes and her kings, Bagoyim, are captured by the Gentiles. Right? That's one. Ain't Torah. There is no Torah. Vagam Nevi'eho Lomotsu Chazoin. And also her prophets do not see any prophetic visions. What is the Emiel referring to? <clears throat> exactly what I'm saying. He is saying that the first base of this was destroyed. Not only was it destroyed, but the key is that the Satan was able to urinate, feed off the energy of God, because God voluntarily allows him to do that, because justice demands that the Jews lose it. But the Satan gives it to the Goyim, so they can influence Jews to sin, and that's exactly what he did, both in the Far East, as I mentioned, and also in, the, in, in Europe, in the West, Rome. All of that happened. The major religions of the world, and there are hundreds of millions of people that uh, observe these religions and so on, uh, began, and Greek philosophy and Roman history and so on, all began at the time of the destruction of the first place of English. There you are. That is called the reciprocal relationship between the Jews and the Goy. Uh, the Jews and the Sultan, I should say. You see. So, we're talking about major events in world history, which is predicated on the relationship between the Sultan and the Jewish people. <clears throat> well, let's see. Any others? Yes. History is replete with our loss and their gain. Because that's the deal that the Sultan has, that he can grow when the Jews sin. The second interesting Tukufa, again, is the destruction of the second temple. And that happened, we know, approximately about 70 CE. CE means common era. Right? That's when it happened. Uh, that the uh, second Beis was destroyed. You see. Now, it was destroyed because, as the Chazal tells us, sinas chinam, groundless or baseless hatred. Yes. And, incidentally, which is very important, the Chofetz Chaim and the Marshal say that it's not the sinas chinam as such, but it is the Roshin horror that is generated by the baseless hatred. That's what destroyed the Second Temple. But in any case, we know this is a major event in Jewish history, obviously. This is a major event because that's really the beginning of what? Of the, uh, the uh, Golas, the exile, the diaspora of the Jewish people. Now we know, wait a minute, who stands to benefit? Obviously, it's a tremendous loss. We lost the Second Temple. I don't, I don't want to go into what that meant to the Jews. Obviously, it was... Uh, outstanding and so on. But we know the benefit goes to the Sultan because he is able to urinate again. He is able to take from the holiness of the Jew those sparks of holiness, right? And urinate and take from it. And since we, again we lost the divine presence, right? He is able to take that concept of the divine presence and again present it to the Goyim. But as a what? the same way he did it also in the, the time of the first place, I mean, this, as a major religion. 
a major understanding of the presence of God, the nature of God, and so on. And that is why, right around that time, right, uh, when the Beis Amigus was destroyed, Christianity evolved, was founded. And what is interesting is that um, Yeshu lived approximately, he died in 33 CE. Young guy, but he obviously died because he was convicted as, uh, for treason as uh, somebody trying to overthrow the Roman government. That's why he was killed. In any case, right around the time that the Beis Amigdus was destroyed, the major works of Christianity were written. There was Paul, who most of the works that he did, the letters of Paul and so on, is approximately 60 CE. Then you have the Gospels, you know, you have uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke and John. They were written between 70 CE and 95 or 100 CE. That's just around the time the Beis Amigdus was destroyed. Now, what's interesting is Christianity is a religion that has wiped out, I, we don't even begin to know how many Jews were killed by the Christians, you see. Now, what we do understand is why? Because Christianity is a result of the loss of the second base amygdash. That is the sudden taking from the energy of the presence of God and giving it to the Goyim obviously to benefit himself because the amount of agony and anguish and pain that they cause the Jews is, is, uh, is not even calculable but in any case this is what they did you see and again it's the reversal you know we lost the second base amygdash they gained a major religion but what they gained was not just a major religion Christianity but it was a religion that's much closer to the truth because Christianity basically, depending on which stage of the history of Christianity, believes in uh, not polytheism, many gods, right? But they believe in, well, they say it's one god, but it's really three gods, the Trinity and so on without getting into that. But it's much closer to the truth because even they at some level say it's basically whatever they call it, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, whatever that means. In any case, that this is closer to the truth because they fundamentally believe that there is God, except he's got parts, whatever. So it's much closer to the truth than is polytheism, which is the belief in many, many gods. So that's what the Sultan does. He brought that religion to the Goyim, and he's hoping to influence, certainly to... to uh, to uh, just punish whatever Jews for their infractions or violations. So therefore, that's another major event that we suffered, you see, and uh, with the destruction of the Second Temple, where, whereas the Goyim benefited because they have a religion which is closer to the MS. You see, it's closer to the truth. So that again is a result. We're talking about major events in history. These are not little local events. I mean, Christianity, many, in many ways, is one of the most successful religions uh, that the world has ever seen.
there's two billion Christians. You see, there's approximately one billion Roman Catholics, and there's another billion, uh, you know, uh, other the other denominations of Christianity. But it's a very successful religion, and this basically comes about because this is the transfer of our kedusha, our energy, to the sultan. So this relationship that we have with the sultan is pivotal in understanding many events of the world. And I will tell you one more, which is fascinating, and that is, uh, uh, in order to understand that, I had mentioned this previously, but there is a concept called the creation calendar. Now we know the Gemara says that Shisa Alfei Shnin, that Hebu Alma, that the world will last six thousand years, because it was created in six days, and each thousand years is one day in the eyes of God. So therefore, six days of creation will equal six thousand years, which means that the world will last until the English year twenty-two. 40, which is the year 6,000. Now, what is important in that calendar, many, many fascinating ideas, but what is important in that calendar is Friday, which is, that means five days will have elapsed. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday will have elapsed. Friday is the sixth day, which is Erev Shabbos. And that corresponds to the English year, right? The English year 1240. So 1240 is on the creation calendar 6 p.m. Thursday night. And that's the beginning of the last day, which is Friday, Erev Shabbos, right? Uh, so we can expect <clears throat> certain tremendous events that happen, you see, especially when we look at the relationship between the Jewish people and the Sultan. You see. Now, what happened is that on Erev Shabbos, which is Thursday at 6 p.m., right, English year 1240, uh, that is the, the Hebrew year 5000, that is a pivotal time in the world history. And the Zoya says something very interesting. It says that the messianic light begins to come down on that year, 1240 approximately. Uh, why? Because Erev Shabbos is when you begin to prepare for Shabbos, right? That's when people begin to think about Shabbos, right? The last day, which is the sixth day of the week. <clears throat> and people begin to think about Shabbos, as I said. And therefore, the Messianic light comes down in preparation for the Messianic era. So that also happens, is what the Zoya says. Then in the uh, sixth day, the beginning of the sixth day, I should say, the messianic light enters creation. Therefore, we can expect that in the year 1240, the messianic light comes down. Now, it's not because of the Jews, it's because this is the timetable of the world. You see, like I said, six days of creation, 6,000 years the Jews to do the Tikkun, you see. So therefore, in preparation for the Messianic era, which is in the end of the sixth day, as I will explain, the Messianic light begins to come down. 
What is the messianic light? That's the interesting concept. Well, the messianic light, in very simple general terms, is the ability to see internal uh, causes, the internal structure of Chokhmah. That's really what it is. In fact, if you want to know what it is, well, let's put it this way, in terms of Judaism, it's the understanding of the internal structure of the Torah. Because remember one thing, is that a mitzvah is a trigger to an or, a light. That's really what it is. There are 613 mitzvahs because there are 613 triggers that release the lights of the spheres because there are 613 parts of the spheres. So every time you do a mitzvah, you release the corresponding energy, divine energy of the sphera that corresponds to that mitzvah. And the mitzvah is the trigger. It's the switch that releases that ore, you see. So therefore, that is the messianic light. We, we will understand every single mitzvah, what it does, and how it corresponds and parallels, right, and interfaces with the entire understanding of the ten forces of God. This is the study of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is the messianic light. That's really what it is. Because it reveals the inner workings, the inner mechanism of all reality that it is rooted in the spheres of God. This is the study of Kabbalah, you see. So that's really what the messianic light is. And according to Kabbalah, it began to descend or rather to influence the world in the year approximately 5,000, which is the year 1240, right? Which is on the creation clock or calendar, the beginning of the sixth day of Shabbos. But wait a minute. If that's the case, right, then that Chokhmah, the ability to see the internal structure, is not only true of Kabbalah, of Jewish perspective, but it's also true of the study of the physical universe. Right? Because remember what I said. The messianic light is like a magnifying glass. It enables you to see the micro of the macro. You see, where you can see the internal structure, the ultimate causes of all reality. But just like this, the relationship between mitzvahs and Kabbalistic spheres, there is also the relationship between the laws of physics, chemistry, biology, and the spheres. But even without the spheres, what about the internal structure of these disciplines? And that's called science. Guess what? That also comes down. Because the whole power of science, which is an amazing concept, is nothing more than the messianic light coming down. Except, in the f- if it goes to the Jews... It's in the form of Kabbalah. But if it goes to Goyim, then it's in the form of science. Both of which can be understood in terms of the internal structure of either the physical universe or the spiritual universe also. You see, that's a very important concept. Now, the problem is, is that Jews are sinning so many times, right? And as a result of that, the Sultan is able to take from this power 
of the messianic light and give it to Goyim. Why? Because he wants people to think that the world came on its own. You see, and therefore, what do you need to observe mitzvahs for? When the natural order of the world, right, is on its own, it's automatic. So he uses science, right, in order to promote the fact that there is no God, chas v'shalom, God forbid, right? But on the contrary, everything is natural, it's automatic, it can be explained with laws of science and so on. That's why he gets out of it. So, therefore, what happened is, since the Messianic light came down in the English year of 1240, right, which is the Hebrew year 5000, right, which is Friday morning, Thursday at 6 p.m., it went to both sides. Is this true historically? And the answer is yes. The side of the Jews, because the Zohar was found approximately... 12, it actually was found earlier, but let's say 1290 when uh, Moshe de Leon discovered the Zoya, and that is the primary textbook of all Kabbalah. So it was actually found approximately around that time. So that's in terms of the Messianic light for Jews. What about science, which is the Messianic light for Goyim, because it describes the physical universe, the internal structure of the physical universe. What about that? And the answer is also happened. Because the father of the scientific method, his name was Roger Bacon. He lived in the year 1240. He's the one who got away from Aristotle because Aristotle was an armchair scientist. Didn't do any experiments. He just thought about it and he tried to come up with explanations. But Roger Bacon got away from that. He says, wait a minute. There's a thing called the scientific method. And he discovered it, and he promoted it. So the beginning of the ability to get away from Aristotelian thought, right, was actually around that year, you see. So amazingly so, both Kabbalah and modern science, which is when it really started then, both happened at the same century, which is amazing when you think about that. Why? Like I said... Because in the year 5000, which is the English year 1240, which is the creation calendar, Thursday night, 6 p.m., which is the beginning of Erev Shabbos, the Zoya says that the Messianic light begins to come down. And both events transpire because the Messianic light is the engine of both secular science and Kabbalistic understanding of Judaism. That is what happened. And again, it's a result. Uh, uh, what happened was that the Sutton, since the Jews are sinning, is able to take science and make it grow tremendously. And this is what happens because he wants to convince people. Right? So think about that. Then you get to the year 1740. Now, 1740 is dawn of Friday morning. It's another 500 years. Because 500 years, right, equals um, 12 hours. So at, at 6 a.m. Friday morning is dawn of the sixth day. In fact, it's the last day. So approximately around that time, 1740, right, since the Sutton was taking so much 
he was unique so much, he was able to take from that and give it to Goyim. So what events happened around that time to increase tremendously the growth of modern science? Isaac Newton. He lived right, right before that time. And Newton, of course, a scientist, is the father of modern science. One of the greatest scientists who ever lived. He's an absolutely brilliant person. Uh, and he lived right before that. And not only that, but there was also somebody, you know, uh, Francis Bacon, who improved, also he lived a little before that. He improved on the scientific method. He really brought it to a tremendous finishing touch. And that increased, again, enormously. The whole concept of the scientific method, hypothesis and experimentation, and, and so on. And both of these things were, of course, in the 17th century, you see. Right before dawn of the, uh, uh, the creation calendar. It's amazing when you think about that. And then by the time you get uh, to 1840, there's another Zoya that says, it says in the uh, 600th year of the life of Noach, Right, the flood happened. It poured out. It said that the waters in the upper uh, regions poured out, and the waters in the lower regions they poured out also, and they flooded the earth. That is the model. So the Zoya says that this indicates uh, that in a 600th year, just like by Noach, it was a 600th year of the life of Noach. Therefore, in a 600th year, right? Of the fifth millennium, which is 5,600, the Orishan, the Messianic light, will begin to pour out with unbelievable amount of uh, clarity and discovery. Did it happen? Yes. Because 5,600, right, is Netachama, basically, is sunrise of the last day, Erev Shabbos, right? You have dawn at, uh, at the year uh, 5,500. Then another 100 years later, you have what's called Netzachamo, which is the uh, sunrise, right? Which is another pivotal idea in the creation calendar. What year was that? 1840, right? That's 5,600. And that is recognized as the beginning uh, of the Industrial Revolution, approximately. And that's when science really began to grow. You had the great physicist Michael Faraday, and you had uh, James Clerk Maxwell. It, it was just an incredible, prolific time for science. And that happened at sunrise of the last day, you see. And that's because the Sutton is unique. He's taken from our, what? Our messianic light, you see. And that's what the Zoya says that the Chochm of the Mashiach is going to come down in incredible uh, volume. But if we don't deserve it, and this is, by the way, the Kotzka Magid says this. I think it's the Kotzka Magid, or is it uh, maybe the Koznitsa Magid, says that according to that Zoya, if the Jews deserve it, there will be a tremendous uh, uh, amount of divine light, Kabbalistic energy, Kabbalistic light, 
messianic uh, light and so on, that will happen. But if the Jews don't deserve it, it will go to the Goyim. How? As science. Unfortunately, it went to the Goyim and basically not to the Jews. And that's why science proliferated with such enormous amount of success. And then it grew, of course, uh, at the end of the century with Einstein and Max Planck and all the other guys and so on and so on. And this is the beginning of really the beginning of modern day science and so on. But what it really is, and most people don't realize, science is nothing more than the messianic light directed to the physical universe. That's really what it is. And science does not grow unless there is no messianic light coming down. Unfortunately, the Sutton is using it, right, in order to uh, persuade Jews to sin. And of course, one of the greatest, uh, I hate to call him an atheist because he wasn't. He was a priest uh, or, or minister, whatever you call him. You know, Darwin, Charles Darwin. He wrote his book, I think, uh, you know, Origin of Species, I think it was in 1858. That's right around that time. And that was a major upheaval in the belief of God. Because people said, well, you don't need God for this. You have evolution. That's what's responsible for the origin of life and for the origin of species. That's it. You see? So I always find it to be, you know, really uh, paradoxical that a minister, you know, a, 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 a Christian minister is responsible for creating a theory, right, that uh, ruined people's belief in a God. Because that's what evolution did. It allowed mankind to have an excuse not to believe in God because now they had an alternative way that the li life came about, the origin of species came about. Uh, it just destroyed Emunah, even among Goyim. But that all happened at around 1840, which is sunrise of the last day. Again, it's a sudden using the messianic light, right, to get Jews to sin and to get the world to become more atheistic, which will then again also influence Jews to sin, you see. <clears throat> and this is what is going on. It's all about the messianic light in the end, and it's about the Satan's ability to take from this light, this energy, and give it to the Goyim, or give it to the world, whatever, uh, when the Jews sin, and therefore he could be urinate from that Kedusha. And I want to just tell you that now, what is happening today is beyond belief. You see, why? Because as we get closer, we have passed another pivotal time period, which is uh, Sunday, 12 o'clock noon. And that's the big, that's Chatzois. 12 o'clock noon, Sunday, right? Not Sunday, Friday. And what is happening is the messianic light is coming down, the energy of that divine light, that messianic light, and so on. The Orishan, the first light, is coming down with tremendous amount of uh, uh, volume and so on. The problem is it's going to the Goyim, not to the Jews, because we are very much into the Golas, and so on. And that is why science is growing by leaps and bounds. When you think about it, you know, you go into a, uh, an electronic store one, in one year, come back a year later the whole store changed different products the growth of science 
is something that the world has never seen. The proliferation of ideas, entire industries rise and fall inside one year. The Hatzvach of scientists to understand the physical reality is beyond belief. I mean, there wasn't much of a difference between some... There, were, there was a... Uh, if you think about it, between somebody who lives in today and somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, right? There wasn't that much of a difference. You know, mankind, you know, grew and so on. But there was not... The, the change of mankind wasn't rapid. Today, right, between the difference between, let's say, uh, 1840, right, and 2012, you, you can't even recognize the difference in society, in civilization. That's how much they've advanced. And that's all due to the messianic light coming down, being used by the Sutton. He's taken from that energy of the messianic light, give it to the Goyim, and it's all about, you know, uh, the advancement of science, which he's hoping, of course, to influence Jews to sin. That's what he's hoping. Uh, so this is happening today. In fact, I once read, and I read this a long time ago, maybe 25 years ago, um, where it said that the sum total of human knowledge doubles every five years. You believe this? Doubles every five years. That's how much information is coming. And the, uh, every year, the seventh, I should say, every day, 7,500 journal articles are published daily. And that's where the, the uh, progress of science is in journal articles. So every day, 7,500 articles are published. Could you imagine the unbelievable proliferation of human knowledge? And therefore, the sum total of human knowledge doubles every five years. I mean, it's just beyond belief because this is the messianic light. But the Sutton is taking from it and giving it to the Goyim. Unfortunately, the Jews do not really have that. Even though there's a lot of, you know, there's forum being written and so on, but you cannot even compare the advancement of, of Judaism compared to the advancement of science. Again, this is the result of the relationship between the Sutton and the Jewish people. People think, well, this is the normal advancement of mankind. No, it's not. It takes a divine force to move the world forward. And what has moved the world, basically, you see, especially the last thousand years, is the messianic light, which is an understanding of the internal structure, right, of creation. That's really what it is. <clears throat> That's, we have to hope that this will be restored, that the messianic light will come down, of course, which it is doing, and that it will be directed at the Jewish people, and therefore they will grow in a way which we cannot even begin to comprehend. Because if this is what's happening to science, you know, to the laws of physics and chemistry and biology and so on, right? If this is the amount of information that the messianic light yields to the secular world, right? Could you imagine what it will yield to the Jewish world? 
when it's com- when it's attached to the Torah. Could you imagine the amount of knowledge that will be understood by everybody? You know, the, uh, the the knowledge of Kabbalah, of the spiritual universes, right? Spiritual reality, how much wisdom there is. Yes, we are going to be privy to that. Uh, all in the, hopefully, the Messianic era. And I once quoted this, uh, that the uh, Medrash Rabbah, at the end of Kohelas, what it says is this, that uh, the amount of Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, which is everything we have, it's uh, the Babylonian Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud, it's, uh, you know, Shulchan Aruch, it's everything, you know, Shadis and Shuvah's form, the Chiltas, the Frost, the Frey, whatever, right? So the Medrash says uh, that the amount of knowledge that will happen to the Jewish people, which happened, I should say, at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, is nothing. He calls it Luft Hevel, which is air. It's Hevel. It doesn't even have substance compared to the amount of knowledge that will happen in the Messianic era. Do you imagine what that means? <clears throat> that means we don't even begin to understand what the Messianic era is. And that is the end of time. You know, like I said, the world will end in the year 6000, the English year 2240. We are now at the English year, right, of, 20, of 2022, right? So what do we have left? We have... Uh, 218 years to go, that the growth of wisdom will be beyond comprehension because we can see the parallel. If this is what the Goyim, the secular world, knows the advancement is so great, right? Could you imagine what the advancement will be in the Jewish world, Kabbalistic thinking? And right now we don't know how that's going to happen, but we can just judge by its parallel in the secular world of science and so on. And that same Medrash says the following, that the, uh, the, the Messianic light, the amount of wisdom at the time of the Mashiach, that itself is Hevel, is Luft, air. And it doesn't even have a substance compared to the amount of knowledge that we will all gain in Ilim Habo, the future world. So imagine, from Judaism, to the Messianic era, and from the Messianic era to Ilim Habo, the future world. The amount of information will be stupendous. <clears throat> and I will end with just a, a brief story that incredibly illustrates this. The Ari was once learning with a student, the great Ari, Yitzhak Ashkenazi, was learning with a student <clears throat> on, uh, on a Shabbos, whatever, and the Ari put his head down, and it looked like he fell asleep. And uh, the student, like, he didn't know what to do. He didn't want to wake up the Ari. You don't do that, right? And all of a sudden, he hears the Ari mumbling to himself. You know, so he thought maybe he's mumbling in his sleep. Right? That's what the Ari's doing. So what he did was, he didn't want to wake up the Ari, but he wanted to hear what the Ari was saying. Because the mumbling of the Ari is greater than the discourses of sages. In any case, <clears throat> so he put his head down near the mouth of the Ari to listen. What was the Ari saying? Even if it's in his sleep. So all of a sudden the Ari woke up. He obviously put his ear too close 
Maybe he woke up and the Talmud obviously was very nervous. Asadeh, we saw that. He says, no, it's okay, don't worry. Uh, everything's okay. So the Talmud got a little more courage. And he says, wait a minute. You were sleeping, you know, and you were mumbling. You know, what was that all about? So the Ari says, I did not go to sleep. What I did is I, I uh, thought of a divine name, Kavono, <clears throat> and I ascended, my consciousness ascended to Olim Yitzira, which is the world right above us. Because I remained here, but I ascended, my consciousness ascended to the world of, Asi, of Yitzira, you see. <clears throat> and, uh, but I was not sleeping. And then in that world is the residence of many of the angels. So an angel came over to me and he asked me, what would I like to do? There's a lot of lectures, shurim going on, you see. And he asked the Ari, whose lecture would you like to go to? So the Ari asked him, who, who's giving the lecture? So if I recall correctly, Rabbi Shimbai Yochai was giving a lecture. And, uh, you know, so the Ari asked him, really? What's he lecturing on? So the angel told him he's lecturing on Parsha's Bullock. Right? Parsha Natura. Right? He told that to the Ari. So the Ari told him, I would like to listen to that lecture. So the angel transported him, rather his consciousness, to that lecture. And he's sitting there and listening to a lecture in heaven by Rav Shimbai Yochai. You see? And uh, so the Ari tells his student what, what my mumbling was. So I was mumbling what Rav Shimon was saying in the lecture. So the Ari, uh, not the Ari, the student got very excited because he wanted to know, like, what does the Torah in that world sound like? You know, obviously it can't be the same. Uh, so he asked the Ari, what was he saying? See, the Ari says the following. If I had 80 years to write what I heard in whatever time I was up there, 10 minutes, whatever, right? I could not complete the amount of information that Rab Shimon was saying in that lecture. Imagine that. If I had 80 years to write it down, I could not write down all the information that he was saying. That shows you how much information there is concealed, right? In the messianic light, we're not even talking about the future world, you see. Now, we know, well, Pasha's Bullock. If you wrote down all the commentaries on Pasha's Bullock, what would it equal? Just that Pasha. A thousand pages? Two thousand that's all it would equal, right? You see? So that's what the, he said, right? Imagine how much information there is, if that's how long it would take, right? 80 years to write down just a Pasha's Bullock. By the way, this story is brought down in the Shifchei, uh, the Ari. But anyway, Barabchaim Vital. In any case, we see a tremendous thing and we can draw the parallel if the world of science has changed you know in a quantum way it's called it's not an arithmetic growth it's not even a geometric growth it's an exponential growth 
that the world of science has grown. From what? About 100 years? 150 years? Right? So if the, it's parallel, which is the messianic light in the Jewish world, if this is what it sounds like, 80 years worth, could you imagine how much information is missing? And how much information the world will see, not just the Jews. That's what it says, Kimola Oretz Deo. And the world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters, means all the oceans, covers the seabed. Right? Now, three quarters of the planet is covered with water. But to a depth of what? I don't know, about seven, eight miles. Can you imagine how much water there is? So could you imagine how much knowledge of God there will be if that's the parallel, right? If that's the analog, like the waters covers the seabed? Yes. We have no idea how that's possible. We have no idea how, that can, how much information that is. We don't even know how it's possible to absorb that amount of information in the short amount of time that the Mashiach will be around. But in any case, whatever it is, therefore we see something very important. The major events of the world is basically the relationship between the Sutton and the Jewish people. And I've only brought out just a couple of them. But the truth is that all history is predicated on that relationship, you see. And this is very important because one of the things we grieve for is that the destruction of the temple was wrought by the sins of the Jews. And because of the relationship that we have with the Sutton, right, that is what we have lost. In other words, not only have we lost the Beis Amigdash, right, but what, what, we have, what the Goyim have gained because of our loss, the ability in many ways to distract us, to destroy us, you see. Now, there are obviously many other concepts and ideas that are important and so on. For instance, Christianity is one of the major ways this is called the Rambam, to spread the concepts of Judaism. Because paganism does not believe in a Messiah. It does not believe in a redemption. You see, it believes once you die, it's over with. You see, <clears throat> so Christianity differed or denied the tenets of, uh, of uh, polytheism. So there, were, there was a very useful service that God used once the Sutton took it to the Goyim. For the, to promote uh, the true religion, you know, Judaism and so on. So there's obviously a great deal more to think about in terms of what was God's purpose in, besides giving the sudden ability, He, God itself, has Himself, has tremendous amount of benefits from that, as God always does, and so on. But in any case, without getting into any of that, uh, so we understand this is really, in many ways, the grief that we experience. Not only we lost the divine presence, but the Goyim have gained the wherewithal to destroy us, to hamper us, to make it impossible for us to observe Judaism, you see. And uh, this, of course, will all end when the exile ends, which hopefully will be right around the corner. Thank you. Any questions? Thank you, Rabbi. So I have a couple of questions. One, yeah. um, okay, so you said when the, um, 
when the Mashiach does come, and we do start to get this wealth of knowledge from the Messianic light, does it come in levels, or does everyone receive the same amount? Well, in the Messianic era, everybody it's, uh, it's, uh, seems to be clear <coughs> that uh, everybody will be privy to the same information. I don't see a difference. Uh, but remember one thing. It's not just knowledge and information. In the Messianic era, you actually experience the information that you received. Because together with the information is a gilui, is a revelation that you actually experience. And that will probably be unequal. I mean, there will be an awesome amount, no question about that. But probable, the amount of avoida you did, the amount of worship that you did with God, will make you differ with other people in terms of what you are actually experiencing. But as far as the information itself, it would seem that everybody will have that information. So, so, this, so now with science, I mean, technology has taken a big step forward in the science realm. So yes. is that, isn't that one of the biggest ways that Satan traps us? As Jews, all, I mean, of course, as, as everyone, but Jews specifically? Yes, that's exactly what I said. The sudden, the sudden what he gains is the ability to convince us to drop God, drop the mitzvahs, drop Judaism, and believe in Darwin, believe in science, because uh, everything is natural, you don't need a religion, and so on. That's what he wants. Believe me, he's not interested in giving the world chokmah technology, science and technology. He wants to use it to convince you of an alternative to the reality you believe in and hopefully that you will sin. It's like a knife. In the hands of a killer, it will kill. But in the hands of a surgeon, it will cure, right? But the knife itself can be used either way. Same thing. I always find it interesting that you know, even though there's such a proliferation of science, the truth is, when you read the science, you realize, how could all of this have come about by chance? It's impossible. And on the contrary, like it says, Hashem, how great is your handiwork, and how deep is, your is the understanding of what God did. On the contrary, if a person would learn science in the correct way, he would realize all of this, can only be because of a creator. I mean, just take a look at the human body. Just take a look at insects. The millions of different insects, how they each survive, and they have unique abilities to survive. How do they get this? I mean, you can just, there's a, there are books written on this. It's astounding. None of this is all plan and purpose and design. This can't come about through chance. So what's interesting is that even if you studied science, if you did it in the right way, you will actually become a greater believer than not. So even science is a path toward religion and belief in God. Okay. So let's say we continue as Jews to live on the path of handing over the sparks of holiness to Satan. In what way are we going to be able to experience this messianic light for him to, you know, not get it anymore? Because... Like we said, with there's so many Jews that are gone, how are we going to be able to regain 
uh, you know, the power of those holy sparks. Well, you have to remember one thing. The Sutton will be annihilated. That's the critical idea. Because if he's not annihilated, you're right. We can't gain it. So he dies. Would that mean he literally dies? Or he becomes a, becomes a good angel? Whatever that means. But he, the whole concept of evil is annihilated. It's, it's over. That means there's no such thing as evil anymore. And therefore, there's no distractions, right? There's no, uh, you know, myth. There's no uh, false arguments and so on. It's all gone. Just like there's no death, right? We know that. There's no disease. There's no sickness. It's like what Chazal called, which is a beautiful way of saying it, in the Messianic era, uh, although they also refer to it in the future world, Yom Shekulay Toiv. On that day, it will be all good. You'll never have a mishap. You'll never have a problem in the Messianic era. It's all phenomenal. You see? So this can only take place if there's no Sutton. And he's gone. He's eradicated. It's over with. It's all good. So from last week, I got cut off with my, um, my questions. I wasn't able to ask them. So I'm going to okay. ask a couple of them now. Um, yeah. We're speaking about last week how the Satan has three strategies to live. And he was dying off, but he's on the last leg of being allied with Edom, with Ishmael. Yes. Right. Yes, so, Ishmael, right. Right. So my question is, is, that's on a grander scale, and that's on the world stage. But does the Satan do that personally to us? Does he use those same, same strategies? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean, does he use the strategies to us. Okay, you know how he but said he, he does the great bluff first, and then he tries to start a war, and then you said he does, then he, once he's starting to die off, then he starts to ally with other, with other nations. But right. does, he do, does he try to do that within us to get our personal holy sparks, meaning... Like actually, he actually, he does. You know who that is? If you remember the second strategy was that he gets dissidents to go into the nation to convince him not to make a war. So that corresponds to the second strategy, which is the era of Rav. He sends his guys that want to dismiss Torah, which is the essential idea of all Judaism. He wants to get rid of that. He uses the era of Rav. Who are the era of Rav, which I think I mentioned? You know, in America, it's the reformed movement, the conservative movement, right? the Reconstructionist movement, it's all those movements that have destroyed Judaism. And in Israel, the heir of Rav, in Israel, it's the Zionists, the, the secular Zionists, who want to replace Israel, right, with Judaism. Because they say, well, we don't need, a, uh, we, we don't need a Judaism. We have a distinct Israeli culture, right? That's all we need. That's what the heir of Rav wants. They want to become a nation like every other nation. That's what Israel is always planning, you see, is to become a nation like every other's. That's why whenever you go to some Israeli institution, they're always trying to imitate New York. You see, ah, that's what they're always trying to do, you see. Um... <clears throat> But that's who they use. They use, actually, they use the heir of Rav 
or the Sutton uses the air of Rav to do his job. Ah. Uh, but that's what he uses. So it's really the same concept. He uses an ally. You see, and that ally is the air of Rav. But ultimately he needs sparks, you see, because of his ally, the air of Rav, cannot convince the Jews to sin, so he's bankrupt. It's not going to help him. He uses the air of Rav to convince the Jews to sin. That's what he does, you see. But if they don't sin, uh, then he's lost. He's bankrupt, you see. So, uh, but with Yishmael, he's able to take from their Kedusha, or their uh, energy that they take directly from God, because of what Avraham Avinu said, and so on. So it's very similar, although not exactly the same. Okay, so that allied relationship that they have with Ishmael, how long could it last? Does it have a time frame? Uh, it's prob- well, Obama's still active, and that explains why he's still active. Because uh, it's, it's an amazing way that the Sutton got around the fact that a president can only be for two terms. Because he put the guy like Biden in, who doesn't know what he's doing, and so on, you know. <clears throat> um, it's hard to know, but I believe it'll end. Uh, I believe Trump will come back in 2024 and bust up the whole party. I believe that's what's going to happen. And I sure hope he goes after all these guys that literally try to destroy him. And they're doing that now. Um, and that's when it will end, you know. Um, and uh, because then Edom, which Trump is the Toshibase of, he will begin the real uh, process of helping the Jews do the Tikkun. So what do we have? We had two and a half years ago. So right. the Mashiach, you don't like, can't really come during that time. Does it? Does the world stage have to be in that? Uh, you remember know that one phase thing. Yeah, I'll tell you. You have to remember one thing. I don't refer to the Mashiach coming. I refer to the beginning of the Messianic era, when all of a sudden the, it turns upward. See, the critical thing is to get rid of the, uh, the uh, evil and to give Hatzlocha to good. The problem is that the good is not successful or it's minimally successful. This is the problem, that evil in the end dominates completely. Where evil people dominate, you know, evil institutions dominate, you see. Uh, and that is, uh, of course, very bad. The turnaround is when all of a sudden evil fails. For some reason, it's just not working. And not only that, not only does evil fail, but the good begins to be successful, you see. That's what we're looking for. When does the evil stop being successful? And when does the forces of good achieve ascendancy when they will be successful. That is the beginning of the Messianic era, but the Mashiach then, you know, he's just come out of prison. That's called the Pekido, you see. But he's got a way to go before he actually becomes what he really is. So I, I, I don't look at in terms of when the Mashiach uh, in his full-blown regalia, so to speak. No. I look, when does evil stop being successful, and when does the good begin to emerge and be victorious? That's the key. Because once that happens, 
there will be, it's irrevocable and unstoppable. That's the key. And that's what we're waiting for. The development itself, it'll take time. But what we want to do is see an end to that svocho, to the success of evil. That's the problem. You see what I'm saying? So in the time frame, in the two and a half years that we still have left of Biden's term, um, the Pekita the could happen and the Mashiach could start, you know, growing on his own. So yes. where we see on the world stage won't be for, you know, time after that once we see evil, you know, dissipating and, yeah. you know, good winning. So yeah, in the I, time frame, I, I, where we, where, what we're really waiting for right now in this time frame is the picky die to happen. Right. When he can break out of his prison, and then once he's free, the Mashiach ben Yosef has to enter the stage called rehabilitation. He's got to be rehabilitated like anybody else. You know, he's suffered enough, and now he's got, he's got to stop suffering and actually enter the phase called rehabilitation and that's how he comes to himself you see so what we're looking for is the emergence from the prison that he's been in and the rehabilitation uh when he begins to grow 